You are listening to Vueltas y Revueltas, the cycling podcast at the Vuelta España, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Stage 6. Today we are in Cullera. Kenny, we were thinking yesterday about links between you and Spain. Obviously, there's the Angliru. I think there's a story about Miguel Indurain, and particularly when you were born. Can you tell me what that is? Uh, when I was born, uh, like the, I'm born in July, obviously. And uh, when I'm born in a video, we can heard in the back of uh, in the, the room, like the Tour de France going on, and it was about uh, yeah, Miguel winning everything. So yeah, when I'm born, my first video is uh, when I am uh, like in um, in the arm of my mother. It's uh, you, you can hear the Tour de France uh, in the background. <laughs> Funny story. Well, who was that, Daniel? Well, Rich, that was King Kenny Ellison, the king of the Vuelta overnight. Dethroned. Richard, what have we said about spoilers? No, sorry. We're trying Ignore to build. A, we're, on, trying to build we're trying to build a narrative here. Um, <laughs> we're trying to set the scene for you know a triumphant, a regal performance by King Kenny today. Um, well, last night I mentioned that is has always been a link between Kenny Elisande and Spain. Not just the fact that he won on the Angliru um, eight years ago, but but when he was born. Um, well, you heard. You heard there, didn't you, in the recording? Um, Kenny told the story this morning from the horse's mouth. Uh, he's not a very big horse, Kenny. Not really a, a shire horse. Is he more of a, a cute little Shetland pony? Indeed. And um, we also, yeah, in last night's podcast, I also said that he would probably hold the, or he could hold the jersey for several days. D did he manage to do that? Stay tuned to find out. Um, Daniel, can I ask about King Kenny though? Because a few, a few comments I've seen about this on social media the origin story of the nickname please King Kenny where does it come from well he played for Liverpool in the 1970s and 80s and you know scored <laughs> number seven on his back <laughs> no no um, the story the origin story of King Kenny there isn't really an origin story there doesn't need to be an origin story Richard it's just uh, something that we have been using for many years now and it, it has stuck but there's there is also something to do with the incongruity of it it's a little bit like Superman Lopez which um, as much as people balk at it and wince at it when we use Superman Lopez I've always quite liked it because because it's very at odds with his physical appearance, I would suggest. Because of the um, incongruity, which, is, which, as we established last night, is Spanish for crosswinds. Um, what, I mean, uh, are, kings don't necessarily have to be tall, though, Daniel. If you're suggesting it's ironic, it, that's not a requirement for it to be a king. No, but does it not help um, if you're the, you know, the absolute monarch of a nation I'm to be a of king. a... You know, physically to be imposing, imposing, physically imposing. Stature. Yes. Well, I mean, I, I, I have a feeling. Without giving away any spoilers, I have a feeling we're going to be hearing again from Kenny Ellison in tonight's episode with a yeah. really quite charming uh, interview, which I do urge you to stay tuned to. I'm doing a good job here of, of uh, keeping people listening. Anyway, uh, <laughs> uh, Lionel, you're with us Richard as well. Richard Moore, a master storyteller. Master storyteller. Uh, we, we should ask you where you are as well, Daniel. 
Well, chaps, I've come down off the mountain. We tried to start recording up there, didn't we? But um, I was relying on Movistar's mobile phone network, which was performing uh, a lot less well than their riders today. So I've come down off the Montaña de Cullera, not really much of a mountain. Um, as we saw on TV, it's a couple of kilometers. And now I have retreated to the press room. Um, I'm just outside the press room and um, yeah, ready to go. You said we tried to start recording. We actually did start recording four times, but um, that's uh, that's all being saved up for the Christmas bloopers episode, isn't it, Lionel? <laughs> it is. I'm actually keeping a little log of, of things that make us sound even more shambolic than the, the stuff we broadcast. <laughs> that'll, be a, that'll be a long episode then. Um, can we have the tale of the etapa, please, Lionel? And, it, and it, you know, it was a cracking stage today, wasn't it? It really was, yeah. It really was um, completely the opposite to yesterday. Really, um, I was watching it, thinking it was like Gent Wevelgem in the sunshine. The last thirty-five k of it, anyway, crosswinds and narrow farm-style roads. Um, obviously, Gent Wevelgem goes up by the the sea as well, but uh, the sea down near Valencia looks slightly warmer than the. The, uh, the, the, the rice sea. fields, chaps. Did you clock the rice fields? Cullera are famous for its mm, paella and rice dishes, and we saw um, at the side of the road where where some of that rice is grown, didn't we? You don't often see Movistar bossing Ghent Wevelgem, do you? In the way that we saw them bossing the race today. That's true. That's true. They, uh, yeah, they did try to turn turn the screw, didn't they? Um, but as you say, Daniel, it it, uh, it was the the finish up on the Alto de la Montaña de Cullera, the little two-kilometer climb um, that was where Tadej Pogacar won a stage of the um, the Tour of Valencia last season before lockdown. Um, I thought I recognised it as they went up there um, this afternoon. The question at the finish was. Would Magnus get caught, or would Magnus not get caught? Um, oh, oh, oh. Eh? Eh? He was in the break, which took a while to go. It actually took almost 50 kilometres for something to stick. There are the uh, usual sort of flurry of attacks in the first hour of racing, but it wasn't until um, Joanne Bao, our audio diarist, who's got quite a decent side hustle as a rider for Uskaltel going in this welter, paired up with Ryan Gibbons of Doing UAE. Well, isn't he, old John? Excellent. Yeah, and we'll come to that yeah. a little bit later on because uh, that wasn't the that wasn't the end of him by any means. He was joined by Ryan Gibbons first, and they plugged away with a small gap. And it wasn't until Yetzer Ball of Burgos, who else? Magnus Court of EF Education Nippo and Bert Jan Lindemann of Quebec Next Hash got across to make it five riders that the peloton eased up and thought that'll do. They didn't want too many more going across, so they eased up pretty sharpish. Um, Guy Niv of Israel Startup Nation tried to go across to it but didn't make it, left it a bit too late to make his move. So those five were away and the race really lit up 33 kilometers to go because there was a big split in the peloton narrow roads and a bit of wind were causing problems and uh, the wheels were basically being let go and kenny ellisond who's uh, talked about riding in crosswinds in last night's episode found himself in the second group and was uh, well he, he had a go at riding across the gap on his own at one point which looked like a slightly unwise strategy but eventually uh, about six kilometres later, the, the the stragglers, the big second group, did get up to the, the main uh, bit of the peloton, which, as you say, was being driven by Movistar, but also had Ineos and Jumbo Visma up there looking alert. As they went round this sort of circuit, 
um, before they got to the final climb. Hugh Carthy was having trouble holding the wheels and he got dropped and had a lot of help from his EF Education Nippo teammates to get him back in with around about eight kilometres to go, still about 6k to the bottom of the climb at that point and the brake still had a minute. Um, touch and go whether they would have enough to fight it out for the stage but they did. They were still 20 odd seconds ahead at the bottom of the climb and Joanne Bao accelerated. He was first to give it a dig on the climb. Didn't work out for him. Uh, behind Ineos Grenadiers were looking pretty ominous. I think it was Narvaez on the front with uh, Carapaz up there and Bernal um, and then of the break it was just uh, Lindemann and Magnus Court who were left and uh, I thought for all the world the, the group behind would catch them but it wasn't to be Magnus Court held on Primoz Roglic led in the rest I did wonder I don't know what you thought chaps there were echoes of that Paris-Nice stage when Roglic caught and passed Gino Maida right at the end and I wondered whether Roglic could have taken the stage if he'd wanted to and perhaps um, thought back to the uh, the control. Well, he was asked about that, chaps. He was asked about it at the finish, and he gave a sort of suitably enigmatic reply. Um, which, not like, not like Roglic. No, no. Um, I mean, it was something along the lines of a sort of Slovenian twist on um, if my grandmother had wheels, she'd be a wheelbarrow. Or <laughs> excellent. I suspect he probably could have won it if he if he had wanted to, but uh, but he didn't. That not to take anything away from Magnus Court because an absolutely terrific uh, win and uh, his fourth welter stage win in his career. What of King Kenny? Then uh, you mentioned Kenny Dalglish who. Uh, synonymous with the red jersey of Liverpool uh, Kenny Ellison did lose the red jersey of the welter today um, cracked on the climb and uh, seemed to be enjoying his last few metres in the red jersey as he uh, as he came up but uh, 4 minutes 30 behind uh, Court and Roglic uh, Hugh Carthy lost 2.50 on the climb despite having obviously got back in touch before they reached the bottom of it uh, Gino Maida lost 127 and Mark Padun lost 59 seconds but everyone else more or less uh, within sort of 25 seconds or so of one another so Overall, Primoz Roglic is now in red. Movistar stacked up behind him. Mass, Lopez and Valverde in second, third and fourth. Then come Bernal and Vlasov. And, well, tomorrow, a seriously difficult stage. Climbing right from the off. I think six categorised climbs and a summit finish. Uh, we will probably know a lot more about the shape of the GC this time tomorrow. But that was a cracking Spanish classic, really. And Charles, if I can just add one thing to the tale of the etapa, and I didn't, I didn't give Lionel prior notice of this, but last night, so we were staying, I was staying in a place called Casas Ibanez, which was halfway between Albacete, where we finished yesterday, and, and Requena, um, where we started today. And well, chaps, we were talking earlier, weren't we? You'd seen my Instagram post that the floods that greeted us in Casas Ibanez. What I didn't know is we were staying in, we were, I knew that we were going to stay in a place called Cañitas Maite and that it also had a restaurant. I didn't know that in 2021, this year, the, that restaurant was voted or a judge to serve the best croqueta in the world, the best ham croqueta in the world. Um, oh, those those delicious potato snacks. <laughs> there you go again. Oh, there goodness. you go. The, they received El Premio Cocinero Revelación, which I'm told is one of the most prestigious 
well, one of the most prestigious Croquetta Awards there is. I mean, it's you know, it's definitely a monument. It's definitely up there. You are listening to Vueltas y Revueltas, the cycling podcast at the Vuelta España, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Still guessing on fueling? Not sure what or when to eat and drink on rides that matter? Never again. Optimize your fueling strategy with real-time glucose data, actionable insights, and personalized analytics. We're here to help you achieve your performance goals. Go to supersapiens.com for more on how to track your energy levels and fuel for success. My name is Charlotte Hayes, and I am head of diabetes wellness and education at Team Novo Nordisk. The, the professional riders, of course, have more experience racing. They have more experience managing their glucose um, in race situations. But this, this newer crop of riders coming along, this, this generation, and our Talent ID camp here has kids who are 15 to early 20s. They're very technology savvy. So we have great technology with CGM, continuous glucose monitoring, which Super Sapiens is, you know, um, you know, marrying that technology into the non-diabetes population. But that's, that's been the game changer, really. And then we can make much more informed decisions about how to manage insulin, how to manage nutrition, because we have that continuous stream of glucose data coming along. Well, these kids now all have CGMs when in the talent ID camps just four years ago it was just starting to be available. And so a handful of kids had CGM, but now everyone in this does. And so these, these kids now also be just because they're, you know, they've grown up with um, smartphones and devices are very tech savvy. And so they're doing some of their own innovation in terms of um, connecting insulin pumps and, um, and connecting um, their CGM data to apps that allow them to view the data and use it in ways that are most useful to them. Thanks very much indeed to our title sponsor, Super Sapiens. Very grateful to them for their support. And we heard once again there from Charlotte Hayes, who I met at the Novo Nordisk Talent ID Camp in Normandy a couple of weeks ago, talking about something I mentioned last night, that how technology is revolutionizing or has revolutionized the way that diabetics manage their condition and how Super Sapiens is part of that technology and how, how we can all use uh, Super Sapiens to help us be better athletes and we're all trying to be better athletes aren't we um thanks once again to super sapiens uh daniel just on the croquettas before we get on to digesting a, a brilliant stage C- can i sort of worm my way into corrections corner before we start um i said that it won the the award that it won was the cocinero revelacion but that doesn't make a lot of sense because that actually means revelation or the, the cook that was the revelation of the year they did they won that prize one of the one of the chefs there won that prize as well but the um the croquetta funnily enough won in the croquetta department uh, the croquetta um, category not in the not in the chef's category before we get emails um pointing out i know that the the potato is not the main ingredient in a croquetta that was a mistake that lionel made a couple of years ago 
which uh, well, I think which we both made that. a lot, a lot, Daniel, a lot Daniel, of correspondence. Daniel and I both a lot made of correspondence. But, yeah. Um, um, I think the question though is, were they any good? Were they better than the this the the prize winning? star-studded celebrity restaurant you took us to in Burgos it was I'm guessing yes yes they were very good Rich we only got one and it was served one croquetta yeah one croquetta we had a bit of a menu degustacion like a okay. you know a, a tasting menu well very much within budget I hasten to add Richard um, you know you've <laughs> got your hands on the one? purse drinks how big um, was how it big I'm, was I'm it? imagining sort of it was between golf ball and tennis ball I would say I would say okay. it was round mm. line of the traditional one. shape yeah. for a cro- croqueta is more like um, what piece of sporting paraphernalia um, if you get one if you get one it should be medicine ball sized surely just mm. in the centre well, of the table the, the, <laughs> what was more remarkable than the croqueta was the sort of preamble we got from one of the waitresses about how we were supposed to eat the croquette and exactly what we were going to what sensations um, we we would feel in our in our mouth once we'd crunched into this award-winning, world-famous now croquetta. I feel quite hungry listening to this. I, I fancy a medicine ball-sized croquetta. <laughs> that sounds delicious. Um, we should get onto the stage. What a what a well-taken win by Magnus Court. Um, he, he's he's kind of you know he's he's a very versatile rider, isn't he? He can win sprints. He he's won a stage quite not dissimilar to that. At the Pyrenees a couple of years ago, and, I seem to and last year's Vuelta had a had a win which was lump, very lumpy. I mean, it was a sprint victory, but uh, mm. Roglic finished second behind him that day as well, um, and won mm-hmm. won a summit finish, a very very similar finish, I would say, at the Tour of Yorkshire a couple of years ago or a few years ago. A very 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 good rider who obviously uh, you know play, played a blinder in terms of just holding enough back in, in the breakaway um, and it was a strong a strong break as well and my chaps have defied team orders to go into that break today because I I understand he was sort of given a, well, a threshold of a minimum of eight riders um, mm. for him to be allowed to go into the break how many were there were the six five five so he, he snuck in and um yeah, it was a good decision. Think there'll the be end, any repercussions it? tonight? I don't know. Well, it was a good decision in the end, wasn't it? it but it's interesting to consider. Um, you know, if we think about what happened at the back of the race with his team leader Hugh Carthy. How the two things mm. may have been related, or were they, or were they not? I don't. It's, it's very difficult to say. I mean, certainly when bike exchange it was really them that that first took the initiative and decided that they were were interested in the stage win, wasn't it? Um, that was the start of well of, of a very difficult last couple of hours which eventually took their toll on Hugh Carthy and the whole of the EF education team that was left in the peloton I think uh, Hugh Carthy needed more than Magnus Court today didn't he and the, the signs are not are not great for him he, he lost quite a bit more time and and didn't look great you know struggling to hold the wheels of his, his teammates should we hear from one of his teammates Daniel yes we should I mean they, the the rulers that were around um, Hugh Carthy, so Caicedo and Coicalera and Tom Scully and, and there were a couple of others as well, they did a great job in pacing him back. I mean, that was after Ineos, Jumbo Visma and um, Movistar really took the initiative and when it really got 
windy towards the end on the final run into the climb so with about 30 kilometers to go that was where the damage was done as far as Carthy was concerned but yeah Koi Calera was one of those who paced him finally managed to pace him back to the peloton in time for the the bottom of that final climb but it seemed pretty inevitable that he would suffer. I mean, it wasn't the kind of climb that suited Hugh Carthy anyway. It was a, a sprint more or less into the bottom, made even worse by or even faster by Jonathan Narvaez of Ineos and the work that they did. And sure enough, he, he suffered, didn't he? He and lost them. Um, he lost over two minutes. So, you know, we've spoken, haven't we, guys, about the the, the issue of positioning and uh, with regard to EF education. And there have been a couple of times already in this Vuelta when they, they've almost been caught out or have been caught out. Yesterday, they were a long way back when there was that big crash with 11K to go. And today, they were, well, they were at the wrong end again so I spoke to Jens Koikalera at the finish about why that might have been and how it had contributed to the the split that eventually occurred yeah it wasn't easy staying in the front I think uh, yeah we missed that first split and, and from that moment on we were always a little bit on the back foot but I think we did it we did it smart and staying together he was always uh, able to come back but uh, yeah, it wasn't easy today yeah, days like today it's so dangerous to lose to lose energy during the stage and I think we did the best we could up until today it wasn't uh, wasn't best suited for you um, tomorrow will be different Jens people have seen EF over the last couple of days and you're probably aware people have said oh they're too far back they're too far back yesterday you know narrowly missed the crash what would you say to that <laughs> that it's not easy to stay in the front uh, I think every sports director is yelling to his team to stay in the front and I think yesterday we when we turned on that big road we felt that it wasn't going to be that it wasn't going to split there weren't going to be any echelons so we just uh, stayed, stayed all together in the back and I think it was good. We weren't involved in the crash. We got around it and we got uh, we got at the finish pretty safe without losing time. Uh, today was a little bit more different, a little bit more difficult, but uh, we, we we keep trying. Problem is those pink jerseys. We can always see it when you're at the back. <laughs> yeah, maybe it's the helmet as well. <laughs> well, Jens Kukulier there, another former audio diarist of ours at the Tour de France last year. Um, refreshingly honest, really, about... Um, pink their, helmets yeah just and just how difficult it is you know it's not easy it's not simply a case of knowing that you've got to be at the front and therefore being at the front it's it's hard and and when you've got a leader who's maybe he's maybe struggling a little bit as well um um maybe even harder although quickly obviously confident that carthy will improve as the race goes into terrain and onto climbs that he might prefer i mean this this today was a real it was a real explosive finish, wasn't it? And perhaps perhaps not one for him. I think we've maybe been a, a bit misled or blind to how different the start of this Vuelta has been to other Vueltas, and particularly last year. There have been some climbs, so we've, we've sort of thought, well, this is typical Vuelta first week. But um, actually, you know, there's been a lot of wind. There have been a lot of flattish, straight roads. I mean, I spoke to... Uh, Guillaume Martin this morning and he said he has not enjoyed himself so far uh, last year's Vuelta of course he was on the attack pretty much every day and he said it's just been a completely different first week this year yeah I think that when you look at the way the final climb went as well you know it's perfectly balanced uh, to see um, 
Roglic up there. It was you know almost made for him really. To, uh, he snaffled a, a, a little time bonus as well. Um, but Michael Matthews was one of the I thought one of the, the the best riders on the climb. And I know we know he can climb very well. But you know it was that climb that was a, a mix, wasn't it? And perhaps the sort of the uh, the real GC riders, you know, were a little bit outside of their comfort zone. Some of them, you know, Carthy obviously was having trouble earlier on in the stage, just just holding wheels, as simple as that, on on flat, windy roads. But when it came to the final climb, you know, Mikael Lander lost a little bit of ground. Richard Carab has lost a little bit of ground, having, um, but I think probably because he was part of the the lead into the bottom of the climb for Ineos. Um, Grenadier so not a not a sort of typical 3-4k climb much more of a almost a almost as I say a classics effort really so a, a, a place where just get through it and, and tick it off and I, I think Movistar will probably be pretty pleased with um, you know how they've come out of that today three riders still extremely well placed overall uh, I don't know what you thought of their performance today well, I think they'd be absolutely thrilled um, in in that they've got well second, third, and fourth on general classification, haven't they? Um, Twenty-five seconds down, Mass, thirty-six Lopez, forty-one Valverde, and, and of the two teams who no, not his age, Daniel. How, how far down is it? <laughs> and of the two teams who came into this race with sort of notional tridents, potential. Or three potential leaders, um, theirs is very much intact. Whereas Ineos is, I don't know what you chaps think, but it, to me it looks as though it's tapering towards well, a single-pronged spear, which with um, Egan Bernal at the tip, because he's 41 seconds down, but Yates leaked a little bit more time today. And Carapaz, I don't know what the intention was, but he, he led into the final climb behind Narvaez and did a lot of work early on with the with the result of with the consequence of him losing a little bit more time uh, again today and he's quite a long way down now he's in 18th place um two minutes 18 seconds down i mean not completely out of it but it looks to me as though bernal is going to be their man yeah i still think they're a carving fork rather than a skewer though aren't they they've still got adam yates in in there um you know he's He's not lost too much ground, but yeah, not a, no longer a trident. Shoot, uh, shoot at l'arrière du peloton, cycling podcast, team car, at the back of the pack, please. That's Seb PK, the voice of Radio Tour at the Tour de France, interrupting our Vuelta coverage to remind us to tell you that this episode is sponsored by LinkedIn Jobs. Now, today, many small business owners are busier than ever. Searching for and interviewing the right candidates can take time away from managing and growing a business. That's why LinkedIn Jobs has made it easier to get to the candidates worth interviewing faster. And it's free, but we'll come to that in a moment. We have experienced ourselves of using LinkedIn Jobs when we were looking for a Spanish language audio producer for our new sister podcast, El Cycling Podcast, the cycling podcast in Spanish. And it's hosted by Laura Messiger and Rob Hatch, who you may know from Eurosport. Rob as a commentator, Laura as a presenter. It wasn't easy, or at least we didn't think it would be easy, to find an audio producer in Spanish um, who also spoke good English. Um, with all the right skills and uh, experiences that we were looking for. LinkedIn Jobs made that really, really easy and we could be really targeted in finding the right candidate. We had a pretty overwhelming response, actually. Well over 10 candidates who 
would all, I'm sure, have done a really good job. In the end, we settled on Marcos Cuevas, a uh, very experienced audio producer who, since day one of El Cycling Podcast, has been working with Rob and Lara and doing a really great job. We would not have found him without LinkedIn Jobs. So we're very, very grateful for that. There will be more episodes of El Cycling Podcast during the Vuelta, of course. Episode one should be later this week and they'll be offering more coverage, obviously, of the Vuelta a España as the race unfolds. You can create a free job post in minutes on LinkedIn Jobs to reach your network and beyond to the world's largest professional network with over 30 million people in the UK. You can focus on candidates with the skills and experience you need and use screening questions to get your role in front of only the most qualified people. Then use the simple tools on LinkedIn Jobs to quickly filter and prioritise those who you'd like to interview and hire. LinkedIn Jobs helps you find the candidates worth interviewing faster and you can post a job for free. Just visit linkedin.com slash cycle. Again, that's linkedin.com slash cycle to post a job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Well, Daniel, you mentioned the the movie star Trident, and uh, it seems to be functioning extremely well so far. Uh, not only in the sense that the writers, the three the three leaders, and you imagine that Mass and Lopez are are the real kind of the real hopes for that team. Um, not not just that they're well positioned, but the way that they're riding and the way they were riding as a team today was very impressive. I wonder if it's a Pachi Vila effect. Um, that we're seeing, perhaps I don't know, but um, I wonder, they've certainly got options now, haven't I, they? I wonder as well whether their decision yesterday, or they announced, we heard in the morning that they were going to do no interviews at all yesterday, neither at the start nor the finish. Um, you know, I wonder whether the the what they saved by not speaking to the media at <laughs> all yesterday um, helped them today. Well, whatever calculations they did on their little calculators before the, the climb today, uh, obviously they got them spot on because uh, they, they rode extremely well. Um, you spoke to somebody this morning he, who mentioned Movistar, didn't he? Somebody with a voice made for the Vuelta mix zone, has to be said. Yes, Rich, we're, well, we're six days into the Vuelta a España now, and at this stage, I mean, we've had, we had had one uphill finish in, up until today, and we'd seen sort of hints, glimmers of, of form from some riders and, and chinks in the armour from others, but I'm always kind of curious to know whether the GC contenders are sort of studying each other and, and looking for signs that someone's going well or not well. I mean, there's that, um, there's the, the, the old story, which is a bit of a myth about Fausto copying the, the vein in the back of his leg. It was sort of throbbing and um, very prominent when he wasn't going well and, and you could barely see it when he was going well. I think I've got that the right way around. But I'm always keen to know whether the riders look for these signs. So I asked Jack Haig of... Bahrain victorious whether he'd been studying the GC contenders this week and what he had seen yeah especially after stage three it was really interesting to see I think we saw Movistar really strong Valverde really really good it'll be interesting to see how the relationship between Enric and uh, uh, Superman goes during the race um, sounds a bit loaded <laughs> um, ah, I'm sure they're good friends but uh, it's an interesting storyline for the media I guess um, and then we also saw maybe Jumbo Visma not quite as strong in terms of team depth uh, so yeah, we can definitely see how the riders are climbing on a stage like today and kind of get some hints as to where everyone's form is. Well chaps, I don't know if Jack Haig has a Netflix subscription, but it sounds as though he'll be disappointed when he finds out that there probably isn't going to be a season three. Season three, I should I should add, of the 
the now well, famous, infamous, beloved documentary, El Dia Menos Pensado, the, the least expected day uh, on the Movistar team. The big question for Movistar now, though, is how, how do they play this? They've got three riders within 15 seconds of one another overall, all um, in the top four. Somebody has to be the leader at some point, and we're getting to the stage of the race where that decision is going to have to start to be made. You'd have, you have to figure it's between Mass and Lopez, don't you? But, um, you know, tomorrow will be really, really interesting to see, you know, what they do, whether they tr- what they they try to do with their strength in numbers, whether they just stick with what they've got for now or whether they try to turn the screw a little bit and, um, you know, maybe make it into a um, two, two against one between uh, Mass and Lopez and Roglic. What would you do if you were in the Movistar team car? I think it'll be made easier by the fact that they seem to be, and they seem to have a lot of riders in very good form, from Erviti to Nelson Oliveira to um, Jacobs as well, Johan Jacobs. And, and, and Valverde at this point, we mentioned his age earlier, didn't we? But I think it's becoming pretty clear that he's going to play the dedicated team man um, at the world so they don't have to worry about about him although I said you know he's an option on general classification I think um, he will be a valuable ally to Superman and Enric Mas but I just wonder whether Jack Haig there whether he said it wasn't a loaded comment about Mas and Superman but then he, he'll know both of them um, particularly Mass. Mass has lived in Andorra for a few years, and as does Haig. And I just wonder whether he's got a little bit of intel there about how harmonious the relationship may or may not be between Superman and Mass. Yeah, it's difficult to imagine either of them willingly, sort of, you know, playing the, the team role when, as you say, Daniel, if they're in good form and they look in good form, um, they'll both fancy. Uh, trying to to win this Vuelta for themselves so that's going to be really a tough one but as well as looking out for throbbing veins on the Movistar riders legs Jack Haig uh, who lost a a little bit more time today um, has got an important job to do for his team leader Mikel Landa doesn't he and Landa has got through almost the first week unscathed hasn't he Which which is worth remarking on yeah, I mean, he he did lose a bit a bit of time again today. It could have been it could have been worse um, because that wasn't a climb that really suited him. But he, you know, he lost twenty seven seconds to Magnus, well, to Roglic as well. In fact, he lost more because Roglic took the time bonus. So uh, I don't know. I'd I would give him sort of six out of ten for today and indeed the first week he has leaked a, a little bit of time but as the team has said a few times this week um, Landa will well will relish the stages that we've got coming I think starting maybe from tomorrow to Balcon de Alicante anyway chaps I spoke to Jack Haig again after the finish um, to get his verdict on on what had been a very hard day Ah, I'm not sure that it's down to his form. I think uh, maybe he's not the best in positioning in these type of climbs and he's really suited for those multiple back-to-back really hard days. So I think we shouldn't read too much into it and uh, let's go on to tomorrow and uh, keep having a crack. He was uh, real hot today out there and I think you saw the effects of the heat with some riders. Uh, the wind also definitely played a part. On the circuit we did there in the final, we did it twice and both times it was 
was thrown in the gutter. I think the first time split a little bit more than the second. And then, yeah, the run into the final. Uh, I'm not sure exactly who took it up, maybe Ineos or Movistar. Really lined it out. And it uh, kind of made it a bit difficult with maybe one and a half Ks before the bottom of the climb. We did this bridge and uh, it was a bit more exposed than the bridge and it really sort of lined everyone out. And then they had a 20, 50 meter head start on the rest of the peloton going into the climb and they really hit the bottom four or 500 meters super hard. Yeah, bigger time gaps than we expected. Is that simply because it was led into that climb so hard and also what had come before the, the previous 30, 40 kilometers? Yeah, definitely. Uh, the day started off with sort of 50 kilometers on quite twisty, fast roads. And um, that was quite hard for the first hour or so of racing, hour and a half. And then uh, Mitchelton really took it up and they made it super hard through a city in the middle there, maybe Valencia when we went through. And it kind of just made it nervous and uh, everyone started uh, positioning really early and ended up being quite a hard day to be honest. Science in Sport is supporting the cycling podcast at the Vuelta España. Science in Sport, fueled by science. Thanks very much indeed to Science and Sport, our sponsor since 2016. If you want 25% off all your Science and Sport products, you know the code SISCP25. Enter that at the checkout at scienceandsport.com for 25% off all your Science and Sport goodies. And I need to stock up on mine because I'm running low and planning on doing a lot of cycling over the next uh, few weeks and months. Should I get some tiramisu energy bakes line? Absolutely, yes. They're really, really good. And they do. Maybe they'll do some cro- croquettas at some point. <laughs> what do you think? Ham croquettas energy bakes. Yeah. <laughs> why well, not? Why not? That there does there does come a time. The croquetta would be a great a great energy it product would. if you could recreate that as an as a sports nutrition product soft it's got the crust on the outside to hold it together in a in a jersey pocket sometimes you crave something a bit savory during mm. a long ride all that potato <laughs> as well anyway <laughs> moving on you can have potato on. croquettas um, by the way you can ha- yes, and you can yeah. have them in spain as well i mean i don't yeah. want to un- open well, this can of worms again but um co- contact <laughs> at the cyclingpodcast.com if you'd like to uh if you'd like to discuss that with Lionel um, Lionel at thecyclingpodcast.com if you want to email him directly uh, well we saw a change in the, the leader's jersey today Primoz Roglic has, is back in back in red uh, so it was a short lived affair for King Kenny Ellis on just one day and it, a bit of a shame because he took it in unfortunate circumstances with Ryan Taramai crashing and didn't seem thrilled to have it in those circumstances so it's a bit of a pity that he's not managed to keep it for a second day where he could he could he could properly enjoy it um but i don't know if that was your sense uh daniel not not to give any more spoiler alerts but there's an interview coming up with him where he comes across very charmingly and doesn't seem to have any regrets about that at all no he was in a difficult position today because uh, whether the break stayed away and it there was a bit of a sort of ceasefire between the general classification riders or um the, the the peloton well chased down the break and and the GC riders were going to duke it out on the final climb it was always going to be difficult for King Kenny because he's not the most explosive climber although he is a pure climber so he was going to have to finish within five seconds of Primoz Roglic or if if Roglic was going for bonus seconds then he was effectively going to be out of the out of the game so it was really difficult for him to know what to do and also 
we've got stages coming starting with tomorrow and, and there's another one stage nine to Alto de Velefique where I think Kenny would like to be in the break and going for a stage win so he, he had to well if he was going to lose time he had to lose it quickly and um, well he eventually did just that on the final climb today but Rich I Spoke to him as he came over the line, smiling just as he was this morning, and um, he'd obviously had a very enjoyable and memorable day. Yeah, I was pretty nervous all day, uh, very nervous actually, and uh, yeah, at the bottom of the climb, I mean, it was, uh, I quickly understood like five seconds on Roglic. I prefer to completely sit up and uh, have a chance to this weekend uh, to, to go again in a breakaway. Rather than be between two shares and be like 40 seconds or 35 seconds and don't have the ticket to go to the break. So I say, okay, I save it completely anyway. I'm not going to make it. And uh, now I am 422 or 425. So maybe I will have a chance to go in a break again uh, tomorrow, after tomorrow. I think it was uh, the, mass, the, smartest, the smartest thing to do. Sorry. Because we have also Julio for the GC. So yeah, I really enjoy it. It was a special. So yeah. when we, we lost Alex Kirsch and uh, I mean in a roundabout I was in a wheel and we almost crashed and then I lost a little bit the confidence because I my front wheel slipped also and uh, and I was a little bit less confident and uh, yeah there were Ashlands and I was a bit alone but no stress. Kenny what was it like to have people I guess you had people calling your name and people always recognize the leader's jersey. It's nice. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, it's nice to. I rode a lot for guys who had the jersey, and uh, to have one time in my life the jersey uh, was nice, was super special. So now I know what it feels to be Primoz Roglic for a day. <laughs> what What are you gonna do with that jersey? What What will you do with? I will not. Uh, I don't know. Maybe I will wash it. Maybe I'm not gonna wash it, and I will put it in a frame, put it in somewhere. Oops, sorry. Somewhere for after my career. I would say to my son, ah, you see, it was no joke. I was a real, uh, I was a cyclist, huh? Well, Kenny Ellison there, um, King Kenny. The king of uh, hearts. King of hearts, for sure. I mean, he, he came across very well in that interview. Um, he's going to frame his jersey um, and uh, stick it up on his wall just to remind himself and others he was, he was a cyclist. Um, so that's nice. Kenny used um, to be... Kenny, when he, he turned pro, a bit like Guillaume Martin has happened with Guillaume Martin in the last few years, um, what was always mentioned in profiles, interviews with Kenny, was that he was a great art lover, you know, and people really laboured this point, and they sort of gave the impression that he spent more time in the Musée d'Orsay than he did on his bike. Um, but, you know, maybe, you know, maybe the Louvre... Do I not, maybe, do I not remember a feature that you did on this Possibly, thing, I wouldn't Daniel, rule it in out. In pro-cycling, so you contributed <laughs> I laboured it more than anyone. Um, you set the narrative. Um, but yeah, it would be a nice, um, it would be a nice tribute, a nice homage if his home city Paris um, took that frame jersey and put it in the Louvre, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I guess anything's possible. Uh, unlikely, I think. Uh, <laughs> sorry, sorry, King Kenny. Um, it was uh, his his teammate Kiel Reinen last night in in our podcast last night said that the first thing he said was he's Parisian not French which was an interesting observation um, because he lives down near Nice now yes, does he, he not does. Daniel he he, he's very and he's very friendly with all the American riders who live down there and think trains with them quite a lot tomorrow then Daniel um, what can we expect 
tomorrow? Well, we've got quite a nasty looking mountain stage or an exciting looking mountain stage finishing on, on a climb that has not featured in the Vuelta a España before or certainly not the top part and the Balcon de Alicante and the last four kilometers in fact uh, up until quite recently weren't even tarmacked. Um, it's quite a nice story about how the tomorrow and 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 the Balcon de Alicante be, having been awarded this stage finish um this is sort of the culmination of a of a bit of a campaign a social media campaign led for several years and this has happened before in the Vuelta um you know members of a local cycling club or um people who live in a certain region get together and they bombard whether it's the race director or someone else someone else in the organization with suggestions um about a particular road and this is what happened with the balcon de alicante there's a, a cycling club at the bottom called the tibi cycling club and they started years ago lobbying for this climb to be used but the last four kilometers had to be tarmac it was a, a bit of a goat track before and those last four kilometers are extremely steep um consistently around 10 percent the gradient there and it's going to be a real sort out they could actually uh, i believe have taken the race even further up uh, the balcon de alicante i think you can go another two kilometers or so there are sort of some antenna on the top of the mountain and and these these local cyclists were hoping that the Vuelta might even go that far, but that won't be the case. But no fans tomorrow. That Daniel. is I mean, right. That, given given the given the you know that that it was a you could call a fan led campaign to have it included. That that seems like a real shame. Yeah, that's a bit ironic, isn't it? And this is because not of COVID, but because of the risk of forest fires. Interesting. Wow. Because um, one of the features and today especially has been the the, the crowds. Um, I think in this first week of the Vuelta, um, well, we've gone through some very un- underpopulated parts of the country, but today the the crowds look pretty impressive on that final climb. It, and it's going to be interesting, chaps, to see how Jumbo Visma approach the next few days and how keen they are to keep this this red jersey. Because well, as we heard Jack Haig allude to earlier on, they haven't looked too solid in the mountains particularly I don't think Stephen Kreiswijk's going that well and Sepkus as well has been patchy so far in the Vuelta so um, they might be quite reluctant to well, to keep hold of the jersey or to try to keep hold of the jersey from now until Santiago de Compostela Just on Roglic and the, the leader's jersey he has overtaken Alejandro Valverde in this Vuelta as the active rider with the most days in the leader's jersey at the Welter. Roglic is, of course, are all red jerseys um, he, this year, last year, and 2019. Um, and he's, well, if he carries on another handful of days, he'll be outright second um, ahead of Roberto Heras and bearing down on Alex Zula, who's got uh, 48 days in the Welter's leader's jersey. Um, that's a record that what about Tony Rominger how many does he have 32 Rominger um, mm. so he's he's joint third then Hellas on 34 and then uh, Zula in the lead on 48 but uh, yeah Roglic is now I think d- tomorrow will be day 29 I'm, I'm doing my arithmetic it was an yeah. interesting it's a very interesting point you made last night though Daniel about bonus seconds have been a sort of the bedrock of of Roglic's Mm. Vuelta wins and um, you know he's not been 
snaffling them as as much as he perhaps has done in in previous no, years. No, but took um, took some today, so that took some yeah, today. That might yeah, be yeah. the start. Yeah, might be. Well, listen, we should wrap things up for tonight. Just a little mention of uh, Mitch Docker's recent life in the peloton. The the last but one episode was a a long chat with Magnus Court, his EF teammate, today's stage winner, which. Uh, you can go back and, and listen to if you want to know more about, about Magnus Court, a very cool Dane. Um, so it's an interesting conversation between the two of them. And uh, we've got another episode of Clumber to Zero coming tomorrow, don't we, Daniel? Can you reveal what it's what it's about? It is, Richard. A, a deep dive into the story of Mark Padun, one of the unexpected... Um, well, I don't know if heroes is the right word, but one of the unexpected protagonists of this cycling summer. Mm, excellent. Looking forward to listening to that. Well, we better let you crack on with that, Daniel. I think you've got some work to do. Um, Just very quickly, Daniel, will you have a chance to sample paella this evening? You're in we the are, Valencia this region. Will- this will shock you, Lionel, but rather than just head straight down the coast in a, in a very straightforward fashion to, um, to the start tomorrow, um, I've selected a, a, a hacienda that is perched up in the mountains, um, slightly inland. It's a bit of a detour, actually. I feel slightly guilty um, because I do have a travelling companion and I'm making them go slightly out of the way. Um, whether we will still get some paella up there in the mountains I'm not sure well you can report back on that tomorrow night um, and we look forward to hooking up with you again an interesting day coming in the Vuelta tomorrow um, in the meantime thank you very much Daniel thanks chaps thanks Lionel thanks chaps Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC member SIPC.